Good morning. We're following a series in Advent on the themes of Advent, and we're talking about peace this morning. We sang a lot about that. And when we approach this topic, the first reaction of many people, especially outside of the church, is, well, you're obviously disconnected from the real world because there's not a whole lot of peace anywhere. You see, their view of peace is absence from. And you get to pick your crisis. It could be absence from addiction. It could be absence from white-collar crime. It could be absence from ethnic and religious hostilities around the world. It could be a personal crisis where people desire peace. In retirement, they, they might say, I don't have enough money in my 401k. Or it might be a crisis in their marriage, their homes, their families. It could be a health care crisis and the bills that often accompany those things. But Jesus echoed these words in John 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he adds, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the first principle I want to talk about this morning is this, you will have tribulation in this world. You're going to have pressure, and it's going to be very real, it's going to come from a variety of sources. And Paul continually communicates this to the church. He says there will be difficult times. I mentioned this verse last week, but I want to reemphasize it. Paul's describing what it's like to be in this world, and he writes these words. But we have this treasure, Jesus Christ, in jars of clay. In fact, that phrase, jars of clay, talks about an imperfect jar of clay where there's a lot of cracks. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Short version of that is that we end up living in such a way that when people look at us, they say, well, you know, Greg can't handle that. There has to be something beyond him that gives him the ability to navigate that. So our lives display God's glory and power because people are absolutely convinced that on a human level, you can't navigate that. Then he goes into this. Talk. We're afflicted. And that's the word it means pressured. And it's the idea that I talked about last week where they used to use this torture technique to get confession out of people. And it's what I call no-win situation. If you were accused of something, they would put a board on top of you and start piling rocks literally to pressure the air to suffocate you. And the idea is simply this, that if you confessed, well, they kept piling the rocks on because you were worthy of death. If you didn't confess, they kept piling the rocks on, you died anyway. So it really was a no-win situation. And you know, there's times that we feel like we're caught in those dilemmas, aren't we? But Paul says, we're afflicted, we're pressured in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And as we listen to stories and we hear what's going on in this world, it's one thing to have it out there in the internet or the news or to hear these stories. And yes, it does move us, but it's when it becomes personal, when it becomes a family member or someone that we are acquainted with, 
it becomes very different, doesn't it? People often have said that it's a difference between attending a funeral for someone and being the one at the funeral for people to come and see because you've lost a loved one. Very different perspective. That brings me to my second principle. When we talk about peace, being a follower of Jesus will create unrest. Luke chapter 12 verse 51, do you think that I've come to give you peace on earth? Note the context. Peace on earth. Yes, that's what the angels sang. And yes, Christ came, the prince of peace. And yes, he restored peace between mankind and God and in times between each other. No, I tell you, but rather division. See, what Christ is referring to is that ideologically, we operate out of a different set of core values. Yes, we have dignity and respect for everyone. We know that every single person is created in the image of God. But what we don't get caught up in is the tribalism in our culture that says, if you disagree with me, then you hate me. It was a few weeks ago we talked about blessed are the peacemakers because we've been navigating looking at the Sermon of the Mount. And I want to remind you of those verses in Matthew 5 verse 10. He writes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these are the verses that coincide with blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now note the little word in that passage It's important. Do you see the word when? Not if. Not like, well, just some. It says when. Last week I talked about being in a post-truth culture. And I want to remind you, the version of that says, if you disagree with me, then you hate me. Loving me means that you agree with me. And things that make us feel bad are wrong and things that make us feel good are true and right. This past week on HGTV, I read this article because I don't get HGTV, but there's, there's a show called Fixer Upper. Anybody seen it? Okay. Yeah, a lot of you have. It's a very hot, wildly popular TV show. It's a big hit. But about two weeks ago, BuzzFeed published a startling investigative report on the couple that runs that show. And I'm going to use their words. They undercovered a dark and terrifying secret about this couple. And what they discovered was they were Christians. That was the dark and terrifying secret. And, and they go to a church where the pastor preaches one man and one woman in marriage. So BuzzFeed puts this out. Us Weekly, Cosmopolitan, other magazines have taken up this breaking news and are running with it. And now there's attempts to shut down this show because of the hate speech this couple is giving. Now, from what I understand is they've never talked about this on the show. They just fix houses and fix them up and show the variety of those kinds of things. But that is where our post-truth culture is. So sociologically, we have to understand that we think and live differently. And there's no tolerance. 
for people who disagree with whoever. That's the controlling PC culture. And for us, we realize that every single person we encountered was someone that Christ loved enough to die on a cross for. So while we strive for peace in our relationships, in our culture, and in our world, this peace on earth as announced by the angels has something and is something larger and more powerful than the absence of conflict. And at times we have to understand it will create conflict. Now I want to begin at the Old Testament and the covenant with Israel. It's critical to our understanding that this Prince of Peace, it goes back to that point in time. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 26, here's what's written. God's saying this to Israel and Ezekiel's reminding them. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And of course that goes back to Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham. The calling that he would make a great nation. And that as a nation they were called to bless the people around them. And of course hindsight's always better than foresight. And we know that the Prince of Peace came through Israel. And we also know that the body of Christ is also called to bless those around them. But historically, when you read the Old Testament, not everyone wanted to live at peace with Israel. Some people wanted to conquer them. So some nations put a target on their backs. Why? Because behind the scenes, the prince and the power of this world called Satan was relentless in seeking their destruction. Why? Because if he could destroy Israel, then he would prove God as a liar. And Satan as well is seeking to destroy the church. Why? Because it's the body of Christ. I read a story this past week coming out of the Middle East. And again, what you're not reading in the public papers is that the underground church in the Middle East is multiplying by leaps and bounds and so are their deaths. There in those countries you accept Christ, you probably accept a death sentence. If the other tribe, if the other religion finds out. So, God established a covenant of peace. And to remind them they had a little tradition. Now, a tradition is like a sacrament that we did this morning, where we partook of communion. Why? Because we never, 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 never want to forget what Christ has done for us. And so part of their tradition was something called a peace offering. And a peace offering was something that could be given any time to celebrate the peace that they enjoyed in God. And there's three circumstances that someone in the Jewish nation would come and give a peace offering. One was a gift of thanksgiving. Two, upon payment of a vow, I, uh, I guess they were happy they got rid of their debt, so they're going to give a peace offering for that. And three was a free expression of worship. And that was an exercise. 
That as they navigate life, as they navigate some difficult situations, as they navigate nations coming after them, as they navigate the breakdown of some of their families and circumstances and their health, it was an exercise so they could see the present peace that God would give them waiting for their future peace, which was the Messiah. Now in the New Testament, it became a common greeting. Paul, when he wrote the Church of Philippians and wrote many different Churches said grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. But what happened to Israel with this peace offering? Simply they lost their why. They lost their mission. They forgot about their covenant with God. And what happened then is a situation, and we see this in Isaiah, we see this in Ezekiel. I'm going to read a verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14 Here was God's conclusion about the peace that was offered during their time. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. See they had the superficial view of peace. And peacemaking. It was about their personal space. And their comfort. And their convenience. And I have to think about Old Testament prophets and I have to think about modern day prophets. I think about the media today. They take that prophetic role. They try to tell us how to think, what to think, and what is true and what is not true. I think about the internet. And you've heard me say before, you can find any teacher you want who will have what your itching ears desire. They can make it sound logical, And some can even make it sound biblical, but it's not. Because it heals the wound of the people superficially. And there is no peace. So that brings me to my third principle, is that we have a God of peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, and the church was in confusion in Corinth, he writes these words, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And of course, holiness means that we strive to be like God. We strive to be like Christ. And Christ in John 14, 27 said this to his disciples. And again, think about this. Because just before hours of his violent death, he was not going to a peaceful situation. What was in his heart? Well, we find out what was in his heart. He desired peace for his followers. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he talks about sending them another comforter. And Paul talks about in Galatians how the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So we have this God of peace. And that's our source. And the kind of peace that he gives, he gives peace in the midst of conflict. He gives peace in the midst and in spite of circumstances. And yes, he's our future peace that someday we know when we see him face to face, there will be the absence from conflict. Internal conflict in our own souls with our sin. External conflict in terms of wars and tribes that fight against each other. And that brings me to my fourth principle is that we are to be intentional about living in peace. It has to be in our strategy. It has to be in our planner. 
First Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Again, it goes back to the original covenant. We are called to bless. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceits. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, one of the statements we often say is, do you want peace? Well, who would say no to that? But Paul lays out in this passage, I shouldn't say Paul, Peter lays out in this passage. We're going to look at another one in a moment that Paul lays out. He gives us the what and how. Now, did you get the list here? He said, you want to live in peace? Have unity of mind. And again, you hear me talk constantly about our diverse unity. It doesn't mean that we all agree on the same thing. It just means that we're all in the same why. We are here because we love Jesus and he loves us. And we're called to be missionaries out into our world. He talks about sympathy, love, tender heart. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't get caught up in a word whirl, war. We're called to bless actions and words. Remember your calling. Remember your words and actions. This is seeking peace. And again, we have a variety of disciples saying this same thing. Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 3. Just listen to them. Put on then. And put on means, and it's an analogy of putting a dress, dress on. It's what you wear. So he's saying, listen, like the clothing you wear for people to see, these are the actions you should put on for people to see. And here's what he talks about. He says, put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He says, put up with each other. Imagine him saying such a thing. <laughs> he says, instead of complaining, and he stresses this just over and over again, he says, forgive. In other words, okay, knock it off. Just forgive and get on with the mission. He says, love each other. Then he says, let God's peace rule your hearts. How many times do we allow other information? And I go back to the two prophets in our culture. How many times do we let the media and the internet rule our hearts instead of God and his word and this prince of peace? He says, unify, have unity, be thankful. Then he talks about God's word should be active in you. And he talks about let it dwell richly in you. Richly means it should produce something. Teach and admonish with wisdom. And then he says sing. And there should be three categories that we sing. And then he qualifies this. Sing with thankfulness in your hearts. Then he closes out and says keep everything centered on Christ. Now, that's how we pursue peace. And Jesus said this in John chapter 13 verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them. You know, we have this faulty assumption today. And I've heard it on both sides and both extremes. 
I hear some people say, you know what? I can choose to follow Jesus and change absolutely nothing. I prayed the prayer, I'm in. Now, to those people, I I ask them this question usually. I said, explain to me this. How can you have a genuine encounter with Christ and nothing changes? Except you get a get out of hell card for on that day. So explain that to me. And see, there's these two extremes when it comes to faith. One says, you know, I got to earn it. And I got to work it. And I got to keep this up because maybe someday I'll be good enough to get into heaven. To those people, Jesus writes these words, and we'll study these later next year in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. He points out to the religious crowd, he's teaching, and says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he says this, because it almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. On that day, many will say to me, this fits the doing category, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And his answer is this. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not I I knew you and you lost it somewhere. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that shook the crowd up. Because there's many Pharisees and Sadducees sitting there listening. And at least the culture of the community was that, you know what? We have to do all these rituals and we have to be here and do this and then we'll be in. Now the other extreme is just believe. Don't worry about anything else. You prayed the prayer. You're in. Go out and live your life like Christ really doesn't matter. And along comes James and he was addressing this whole faith and works things. And people were caught up in this controversy. Some say, no, 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 we got to earn it. Some say, no, 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 it's just free and we can do whatever we want. And James says this in 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now please hear what I'm saying this morning. We are saved by grace. It is a gift. You can never earn it. But when you encounter Christ, something changes. And it's not change that everybody else wants to see. Because we have our little lists in churches that think, well, they're a Christian now. They should stop doing these things. It's a change that Christ wants to see in us. And we continually work on that. I am still working on issues that I have. And you need to know this. There are things today that I consider to be sin that 30 years ago I would have never considered to be sin. And thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ that he didn't just back up the truck and dump it all on me at one time because I would not have survived that. See, there's two great questions when we come face to face with God that I think he will ask. One is, what did you do with my son Jesus? I will almost guarantee you He's not going to ask you what denomination you went to. (laughs) Now, if I'm wrong, I'll admit that. But he's going to ask you, what did you do with my son Jesus? And number two, he's going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? See, the one is a question of salvation. The other is a question of stewardship. 
And that's why Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 4. Now he, he sets up by saying, listen, rejoice. Don't be anxious. Pray about everything. And make sure that in your rejoicing and being anxious and praying that you pray with a thankful heart. Okay? Then he adds these words. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any evidence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. There's the connection between faith and works. Then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. God's peace will be with you if you practice these things. So it's daily practice. It's being intentional. It's exercising. And we do not do what he tells us to do. It simply means that we don't believe that he has our best interests at heart. And when we do not do what he tells us, we really believe that we're a little smarter than Christ, don't we? Now, we wouldn't say that. But that's how we treat him. God, you know what's best except this area. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important first for your own personal peace. But it's also important where God has called you to be a missionary in your culture. Because you will be given opportunities to create or at least to help navigate peace. And I will guarantee you this. That if you follow the path of peace, God will place you in circumstances where in that moment you have an opportunity to give peace. You're going to sit there and say, what am I doing here? <laughs> How am I going to navigate this? Are you sure you want me to take care of this? You know, let me call somebody smarter than I am. And let me give you an illustration of what happened to me one time. It's really an unlikely situation. I backdoored, I got backdoored into a place called Georgian College when I was church planning in Canada. Very secular school, had many campuses, about 30,000 students, and they didn't have chaplains. But I got backdoored as a chaplain because they needed someone who specialized in working with abuse victims. So they brought me on this way. I remember early on, the president met with me and said, listen, as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't be here. But some other people think you should, so I'm willing to give you a trial for six months. In that six-month period, there was a tragic murder. A young lady in her early 20s had a three-year-old son, was murdered just five days before she would have graduated. And because the graduation ceremony was coming up, I was sitting with the president, the four vice presidents, and all the heads of the departments. So I'm in this room with a lot of brain power in terms of the educational system. And I'm sitting there with my robe on. It was a heavily Catholic community, so I wore a robe when I was at college. That was part of the expectation. And by the way, robes are fun to wear because you can wear anything you want under them. <laughs> I will admit that. And, and they're sitting there saying, okay, what do we do? Here's this crisis. It's not very peaceful. We have a graduation coming up. Graduation is celebration. 
Her family did absolutely nothing in terms of memorial service or anything. So there's this void of, you know, carrying this to completion. And so they're sitting around talking for about half hour. And they decided, and I didn't interject at this point, that graduation was a time of celebration. And they said, so let's pretend that this didn't happen and we'll deal with it after graduation. So after the decision was made, for some crazy reason, the president looked at me and here's what he said. He goes, you've dealt with death. What do you think? Now, I had no clout or authority. And I'm praying very quickly inside saying, Lord, what am I doing here? And what should I say next? So I've learned in those situations to ask questions. And so him being the president responsible for the college, I says, what's your biggest concern? His answer was the reputation of Georgian College. I said, if that's your priority, then you need to change your plans. He looked at me and says, okay. He goes, what's your strategy? So I laid a strategy out. I won't take time to talk about that. But it's a strategy to give dignity and peace to this young lady and her son, to the college and to the people, to the supporters of the college. And even though he didn't like the plan, he agreed to go with it. And he called me into his office a week later. And the amount of press and mail that he received thanking him for doing what was done. He said, I was wrong. You were right. And as far as I'm concerned, you have permanent position here as long as I'm the president. And then he made me in charge of the TURT team. The TURT team is a tragic event response team. So I got to train people in ways that were godly in terms of helping people. Now, I got to tell you, when I got put in that situation, I was young. I had no idea how to navigate. God gave me wisdom. And you will find yourself in those positions if you want to be a peacemaker. And I'll admit, I was scared. But you know, God had my back. But it's why we practice peace. And I will add this too. We do it imperfectly. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. And let me say this. If you're looking for peace from your circumstances, there's not enough lawyers, counselors, and doctors that will deliver that kind of peace. But if you're looking for peace in the midst of your circumstances, knowing that in the future there will be incredible peace from everything and everyone, I got good news for you. And his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we worship in closing.